The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Toby Manhairaho. Welcome to this special bonus edition of Gone by Lunchtime, a summary snack. Uh, skip through the 10 days of 2022 that, to my mind, best capture the year in politics as a whole. It's just me in the studio alone, apart from Samuel, for this special snack edition. Annabelle and Ben are actually here, but we've just turned their microphones off. Um, so they're sort of staring blankly at me and Samuel and... Um, looking pensive and plaintive. There are various moments, various stories that took place in 2022 that have been ruled out of scope for the purposes of this exercise, like, for example, the Black Ferns World Cup victory, which was a really big moment, quite seriously, in 2022, that Herculean hand of uh, Joanna Ngan Wu. Um, and I do think that was kind of a transformative moment in our culture and sport and politics, or cultural politics, um, but we're not having it because we're sticking to more kind of uh, parliamentary brand of politics. We're also ruled out of scope. The other big story that you've all been thinking about all year that has lasted in memories and will do for some time, which is, of course, Kate Hawkesby's uh, achingly personal column slash think piece about the struggles she faced in getting a pool installed in the post-COVID period. Um, that one, while it was poignant and uh, powerful and upsetting for many, we've ruled that one out of this pod list cast, pod list a list podcast. Um, as we look at the 10 definitive days for politics in New Zealand, let's begin on Tuesday, March the 2nd. Fires, fury and forklifts have seen what could be the end of the protest at Parliament. Protesters who have occupied Parliament's lawn for more than three weeks were pushed back when a massive surge of police late tore tents off Parliament's lawn, clearing about a third of it in a matter of minutes. Protesters tried to resist hurling objects at officers before a fire was started in the remaining area of occupation, sending thick smoke across Parliament's grounds. There's a bunch of different days we could have chosen to define that period, those 23 days when the grounds of Parliament were occupied. Could have chosen um, Waitangi Day, I think it was, when the convoys set off from either end of the country. They were, you know, parroting, copying the, the Canadian movement. Could have chosen February 9, when there were that first big police push to try and surround them, almost kettle them, I think they call it. Um, and that was that 
that failed and then the people who were occupying the grounds was emboldened, I think. We could have chosen the Barry Manilow evening, of course, and the evenings of Barry Manilow and Trevor Mallard spraying um, various other show tunes and um, and memes at the crowd and turning the sprinklers on. That was a that was a bit of a counterproductive mini carnival. But what we I think the date that most of us remember when we think about about it was March the second, when it was just sort of scenes that you didn't think you'd imagine in New Zealand in twenty twenty two. They seemed like something from another country. Um, over the course of those weeks, we'd had these encampments turn into almost a little village, and there were. I think it's important to recall, and maybe some of us weren't as cognizant at the time as we might have been. There are a lot of really quite distressed people in that group, um, a whole range of people, um, and it's a difficult one to put back together. Um, it's a slow process happening in different families, I think, around the country. But at the same time, as saying that, it's important not to forget some of the rhetoric and threats that were coming from some, but not all, of the leaders of this action. There were threats of execution against politicians and against media, and they weren't isolated examples. That was a real thread that went through parts of it. There were attempts at arson, there were attempts to burn down old government buildings on that last day, there were bricks thrown at police officers. Um, there was a lot of stuff that I think needs remembering as completely beyond any reasonable idea of the democratic process in New Zealand. There's one, I just um, dug up one quote that I remember when I was watching um, <laughs> for my sins and for my work, the the counterspin uh, broadcast on the day that the police went in and cleared Parliament grounds and Calvin Epps said, quote, can you imagine if a few boys brought out of their boot a few AK-47s? Those Muppets would have run for the hills. That's the problem. You disarm population under a false flag so they can then come and eviscerate you. So that's the... Rhetoric, that's not some totally out there fringe person, but someone with a big audience, including a large number of the people who took part in that protest. People who used it as a kind of recruitment scheme for the disaffected. And I think that kind of ugly division, I think the people that were most responsible for that were those people rather than anybody else. In any case, that day, I think, did set a tone for the year and it's taken some time. We'll continue to take some time to put things together again. Let's go to day number two, Monday, March 14. On that basis, Cabinet has decided today to do what we can to alleviate the increases at the pump by reducing the fuel excise duty by 25 cents a litre and the road user charges by the same amount for a period of three months. It hadn't been that long before that press conference on Monday, March the 14th, that Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson and others were doing their best to kind of palm off the idea that it was a cost of living crisis, that they were challenges, yes, and for some people it amounted to a crisis and so on and so forth. But by this point, by a quarter of the way through the year, for a range of reasons, most pointedly the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin and Russia 
and still some of the ongoing shockwaves out of the COVID-19 lockdowns that affected supply chains. I mean, the fuel prices were surging and there was what the Prime Minister called that day a wicked, perfect storm. And so something needs to be done. Inflation rampant, cost of living in a real state for a lot of people. And that solution that was delivered on that day was a cut in fuel excise and road, charger, road user charges as well as uh, halving public transport fares. It was extended beyond that three-month period and through again until the early part of 2023 and taken together it's going to cost an awful lot, a billion dollars plus. Um, one of the reasons that day was important I think is from then on it was very clear that the cost of living crisis had a permanent seat at the table of New Zealand politics. Um, we remember in the in the budget, there was the cost of living payment that was dished out, which had a few snags of its own um, because it hadn't perhaps properly been articulated in terms of the risks involved. So when there were stories about people who didn't need the money abroad getting it, or even people who were so abroad they were actually dead getting it, that backfired a little. But as a whole, inflation, cost of living, and we'll get there towards the end of the year too, were just a permanent fixture. Day three, Tuesday, March fifteen. Um, you've been involved in, I think, some of some of the most wild conflagrations <laughs> we've seen, and you know some of the strangest incidents in political history <laughs> we've seen. Uh, J- Jamie Lee Ross, Judith Collins have opted basically to destroy their lives and careers <laughs> just to get at you. And so I'm, I'm wondering, are you retiring to like do a course on how to be a bit easier to get along with? Or, like, <laughs> I have enjoyed all of it. And the thing that is, you are, I don't know what I, how I somehow justify this, this passion and I'm just a regular dickhead. You know, there's no, I'm not adding, there's not like a lot more to it that is why these people sort of, because you're right, they have exploded. These people have exploded on me. That, of course, is Simon Bridges, and that was from an episode of Gone by Lunchtime recorded on March the 16th, the day after Bridges had surprised almost everyone by announcing his resignation from Parliament. He, at the time, was finance spokesperson for the National Party, and it looked as though he and Christopher Luxon had reached an agreement, uh, a sort of detente of sorts, whereby they would work together as a power pair and charge towards the election in 2023, but no, Bridges would go, and that recording that you just heard was Ben Thomas uh, grilling him when he guessed it on the podcast. There was a lot of talk about whether or not there was some scandal that was yet to be uncovered, but it turned out that no, Simon Bridges wanted to devote his time to podcasting and, of course, other things. He's um, running the Auckland Chamber of Commerce, among, among other hobbies. What it did, though, is... Well, for a moment there, it seemed as though there must be something where there's smoke, there's fire, and National's efforts to get itself back together after so many hellish, turbulent years, the times described in Andrea Vance's book, Blue Blood, that it was going to carry on, that they couldn't get a break, that the stability they sought was not going to be forthcoming. But in fact, Nicola Willis was appointed to that position vacated by Simon Bridges, Christopher Luxon had her 
beside him, she she was already the deputy leader of the party, but, but as uh, with her, her running finance there, the stability that they'd looked for arrived slowly but surely. And Nicola Willis has been, I think, in I mean, I've sort of named various people as politicians of the year in this great kind of fatigue-inducing end-of-year roundup. But Nicola Willis was someone I named in one of them, and 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 I think what she offered is just a ballast. So while Luxon had um, has had his moments, he's had his little mini gaffes, he's had his struggles with details. Nicola Willis has been a sort of consistent, strong, stable force because she doesn't only have the experience as a parliamentarian, but she also has the experience as a staffer during uh, the John Key years. And so while Grant Robertson has been a formidable finance minister and really made that role his own and provided the necessary sense of uh, gravitas and prudence and so on, he's had a succession of people opposite him who have just been not up to it. Uh, Nicola Willis is giving him a run for his money, and that couldn't be couldn't be more important as we go into an election year with the economy, cost of living at its heart. The leader and finance combos are going to be critical. I remember they used to when when Grant Robertson stood for the leadership one time, he had uh, Jacinda Ardern as his. Nominal deputy, and they were called Grisinda. So I think we're going to need to find a, what do you call it, a portmanteau for Nicola Willis and uh, Christopher Luxon. Nixon probably doesn't work. Let's go to the next day, Tuesday, May the 31st. So I look forward to our conversations today. We have a lot to talk about, and I'm really, really delighted to have you. And can I say, Mr. President, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that, of course, uh, is Joseph Biden, the President of the United States of America, and Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. That day is there because it's obviously a big day when you turn up at the White House. It was the first time uh, for New Zealand visiting the White House since John Key did it in 2014, but also in a way to kind of epitomise the foreign journeys of Ardern for for you know for for the covid years up until march 2020 um Jacinda Ardern like all of us were stuck at home so all of those usual kind of set pieces overseas disappeared from the calendar and then the the, the dam burst in in april uh, 2022 and in those last 9 months of the year the prime minister spent 55 days abroad which is Many more days than she would have liked, I should think. But, of course, a trip to the White House was a valuable one by anyone's measure. And it was important, apart from anything else, because of what's been going on in the Pacific in recent months and over the course of this year and in many ways in in the years beforehand in in terms of tensions between... Beijing and Washington in terms of influence in the area. Uh, America has always been good at the rhetoric, perhaps less good at the action in, in, in many instances. And for New Zealand, remember this was coming after China signed a deal with the Solomon Islands and sought to sign similar deals um, with a bunch of other uh, countries in the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, but the Solomon's deal was a concern that close to Australia, there was potential for 
a bunch of a bunch of developments that suggested China's influence in the Pacific would grow. Cinder Ardern's challenge, of course, in all of that is both to kind of um, calm the situation, but also for New Zealand to walk that tightrope, which we attempt to do, between America and China. And I think for the most part, sort of a, a pretty good marks on that front. It isn't easy. And uh, the year ends with things probably looking a bit more stable. I'm not saying this is all down to Jacinda Ardern, but in terms of that particular dynamic. Oh, one other thing I was going to mention, I've printed out uh, a headline on that White House trip from Breitbart, which is, of course, the um, slightly loony right-wing media outlet most people associate with Steve Bannon, and the headline uh, for the New Zealand Prime Minister's visit to the White House went like this, New Zealand socialist Jacinda Ardern in power after a sham election gets warm welcome from Biden. So there you go. Fifth story on Monday, June 13. Good evening. The Prime Minister's office billed it as a minor reshuffle. Instead, Jacinda Ardern threw the pack in the air. The resignation of Immigration, Justice and Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy, the end of Speaker Trevor Mallard's 35-year parliamentary career, the axing of Portal Williams as Police Minister to be replaced by Chris Hipkins, COVID-19 response handed by Aisha Viral, and there was more to come. So that reshuffle billed as a minor reshuffle, wasn't really a minor reshuffle at all, in the middle of June, was quite an important day, I think, in the political year for the government because it contained within it a whole bunch of different storylines, a whole bunch of fault lines, some departures, but also some of the issues that that they were grappling with, uh, not entirely successfully. To start with, Chris Farfoy left... Farfoy, a really competent, well-liked person. He hadn't, he'd wanted out before the previous election. He was persuaded to stay. The fact that so many portfolios have been given to him probably gives us a clue as to the lack of depth that Jacinda Ardern has struggled with in terms of her senior ministers. But what he left when he went out were some pretty messy portfolios, particularly we think about immigration, which was left to Michael Wood. Think about the media merger, and we all know what's happened with that in the last few weeks, which was left to Willie Jackson, and justice was passed to Kiritapu Allen, who needed to kind of reorganise the hate speech laws after Farfoy had made a bit of a mess in terms of attempting to articulate those. And then one other thing, I mean, Farfoy is far from a villain. He couldn't be described as a villain at all, but he does, he did depart and go immediately, almost immediately into a lobbying role, which provided perhaps another service in illustrating just how weak our own rules are around that revolving door lobby to parliament system. Beyond that, there was Poto Williams who who lost the police portfolio. She's leaving too. But that portfolio just wasn't under control and there was already a strong sense of people's concern related to the rise in ram raids. Some of it uh, statistically borne out, some of it anecdotal, but all very real in people's minds. And Chris Hipkin, who's another of the great fixits of the Ardern years, was put there to deal with that. 
Trevor Mallard, who wasn't, of course, a minister, so it wasn't part of a ministerial reshuffle, but his departure was announced too on that day. He was going out from the Speaker's chair and off to Dublin, uh, which would end quite a remarkable a remarkable parliamentary career, which had uh, some some awful moments and some some really good ones too. Uh, in his place, Adrian Rurafia has provided a really kind of calming a balm in the House uh, where there had been rancour, and so that's a positive sign. Next day, Sunday, July 23. The future of James Shaw as Green Party co-leader hangs in the balance. Within the past hour, the party members voted to retain Marama Davidson, but open up the other leadership roles to new nominations. This one had a bit of a French farce quality to it with sort of opening and closing doors and uh, people arguing with mirrors. I don't know. It was a curious one. James Shaw was ejected from the Greens co-leadership after... How many people was it? 25%, more than 25% of the 107 delegates who voted at their AGM, at the party AGM, said uh, we would like to reopen nominations against this James Shaw chap. And that meant that he vacated the role and he sort of took a deep breath and then set about going to meet a bunch of members who he'd perhaps not seen so much partly because of COVID and partly because his focus on the climate portfolio. And by his account, and I believe him, it was a quite useful experience to reconnect with, uh, you know, I guess what you call the grassroots of, of the party. But also in ways in which this was, you know, what looked like a problem for the Green Party, and I'm not saying they would have wished it, nor wished to necessarily go through it again, but it did mean that they sort of dealt with that issue where there had been those rumblings for some time about groups with the sort of younger and lefter groups within the Green Party who felt uncomfortable with the idea of, uh, you know, consorting with the enemy, of going into government and kind of working alongside the existing uh, paradigms and so on and so forth where, you know, instead the true Green co-papa was uh, fighting hard from outside. So in the end, when he came back to uh, face... Uh, re-election, James Shaw, there were no challenges. There were a few people who seemed to think about it. There were a few people who looked like they might put their hands up, but didn't in the end. And Shaw, in the end, was returned by nearly something like 97%. Uh, so that's not a, not a terrible thing to happen the year before election year. Certainly you don't want it happening in election year, but the Greens partly through probably getting refugees from the Labour Party, uh, are sitting pretty strongly on around 10% ahead of election year. And this is as good a place as any to mention, though it's not attached to that day, the performance through the year of the ACT Party led by David Seymour. Predictions that the whole ACT Party, parliamentary party, would explode uh, after David Seymour had to get used to working with people other than just one MP called David Seymour, those proved untrue and it's been disciplined, stable, productive. There are, even if there are, there are a few MPs in there who have, who have really shone. It's not just David Seymour, Brooke Van Velden, Nicole McKee, Karen Shaw are, are three that um, come to mind. They also, whatever you think about some of ACT's parties and attention-getting approaches, did not 
fall apart or fall down close to the 5% threshold when National rose up again. There were some, you know, reason, it was it was reasonable to wonder after all those terrible years in the National Party, which I touched on earlier, whether ACT was really just doing well in the polls as a result of that and that once National started to resemble something that could actually function, that ACT would fall away again and start scrapping around the 5%. Not at all. They stayed comfortably over 10%. And so we have this interesting situation where we go into 2023 with two pretty clear blocks, Labour-Green versus National Act, uh, which is uh, not all that common, but maybe not a terrible thing under an MMP system. The seventh day is Monday, August the 8th. This is Checkpoint, called Lisa Owen TNA. National's newest MP, Sam Uffendale, has revealed he was asked to leave Auckland's King's College 23 years ago for his part in a vicious assault against a younger student. Uffendale was only elected to replace former National Party leader Simon Bridges in June. The revelations come just a day after the National Party conference in Tauranga. Yeah, so this was a pretty ugly episode in which Sam Uffendale, the recently elected national candidate in the Tauranga by-election, that by-election took place on June the 18th, which seems incredible to me. It seemed like it happened a lot earlier than that. Uh, it was revealed by Kirsty Johnson reporting for Stuff that when he was at King's College, he had been expelled or perhaps he didn't accept that wording precisely, in effect expelled, asked to leave uh, after he'd been involved in a, well, in, in, in an assault, in a pretty vicious assault on a fellow student, which may or may have not included administering a beating with a bed leg. Uh, and this revelation in turn shone a light on National's own selection processes. It transpired that Uffendale had revealed this part of his history to the selection committee uh, and that that had been then revealed to Luxon's office, but Luxon himself hadn't been told. There ensued a period of days, weeks, in which other allegations emerged, including those from a former flatmate uh, from Otago. Luxon then commissioned Maria Jew, KC, as it is now, QC as it was then, uh, to undertake a review and a dependent investigation. Maria Jew found that she could not what was the wording exactly? But she could not. She could. She she couldn't prove basically, and that's depends on what the threshold is for proving. But but she 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 was unable to fully substantiate those claims, and as a result, Uffendale was permitted to stay uh, as MP for Tauranga. The, the, the sort of episode as a whole, though, not only questioned some of the character of the sorts of people that. The National Party has, but more generally in politics, it also kind of made us reflect, I think, a bit importantly on the nature of our own schooling institutions. Uh, and it also, I think, gave the National Party cause to think a bit harder about some of their selection processes that saw their 
even before any of this emerged, the that that picture which took on a kind of meme quality of its own of the four candidates for the national candidacy for the Tauranga by-election looked like they'd sort of emerged from some kind of human 3D printer. They were so alike. And so later on in Hamilton West, it was an opportunity for National to sort of in a way move on from that. And so with the election of Tama Portaka. The other thing I suppose about it was that it was a, it was a test to some extent of Christopher Luxon and whether or not he could uh, make his way through that process while contending with a range of conflicting interests and applying natural justice. And in a tricky one, he probably came out of it looking more assured than he did at the outset. Friday, September 9, speaking of KCs and QCs. This is BBC News from London. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. In a statement, the palace said the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. Now, that was, uh, of course, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. That got a lot of media coverage in New Zealand, a lot, partly because people have been preparing this coverage for literal decades as they had around the world, and partly because people are very interested in it, and partly because it has some political import. I don't think there's... I think there probably has never been a bigger deployment of New Zealand media abroad outside sporting contests, perhaps, than than this. It was it was quite extraordinary to see every, everyone over, over there at the palace for the funeral. And I guess it's fair to ask, is that really, should that really make a list of, of, of definitive days in New Zealand politics? In some sense, it didn't really affect our our politics at all, um, you know, and maybe it maybe it should make its way out of this list. And Kate Hawkesby's pool predicament should go back in there, but it's in there, I suppose, because well, it has to be, right? I mean, this is this is the death of New Zealand's head of state, and it's the first time there has been a change in New Zealand's head of state in the lifetime of anyone who's under the age of about seventy. So I think that's just has to go in there. We now have to contend with a new head of state who has various challenges, including with uh, fountain pens, among other things. One of the interesting things that came out of it is there was sort of there was a kind of moment of respectfulness where you know we're not going to talk about uh, whether this monarchy, the random British family being in charge, is is anachronistic. We're going to. That's quite right, and it hasn't happened yet though either. There hasn't been. There hasn't been, that I've noticed, any upsurge in Republican sentiment. I guess we'll find out in polls in the in the months ahead. Uh, whether it happens at all, I don't know. It probably depends, doesn't it, on on whether or not uh, I was about to say Prince Charles, King Charles, does anything to disgrace himself and makes us think again about those issues. There's certainly. I imagine across the board a certain amount of reluctance to grasp that particular thorny stick of uh, of constitutional change because it just brings so many complexities with it. 
Day number nine, Monday, September 12. Today, 927 days into this pandemic, we've reached a major milestone in our journey with COVID-19. Today, Cabinet has determined that based on public health advice, we are able to remove the traffic light system and with that decision, claim back the certainty we have all lost over the last three years. That was September the 12th, and there's another one I had to go back and triple check because it seemed to me, really, was it only the middle of September that all of those, that the mask mask requirements were lifted and the traffic lights were toppled and, and chucked in a skip somewhere? But, yep, there it is, September the 12th, and it, it, it was the start of the year the country was still emerging, certainly Auckland uh, emerging blurry-eyed into the world after having been in, in lockdown and the team of five million was already a really a thing of the past. But that day, I guess it represented as much as anything, and you can hear that in the Prime Minister's words after 927 days, uh, talking about getting back to certainty. It, something, something close to an idea that society was going to return to normal, and that comes with a heavy caveat because, of course, as I speak um, in the days before Christmas the COVID numbers continued to soar, the hospital system is under immense pressure. And at this time last year, there was a lot of focus, a lot of coverage of the strain on the health system, whether or not it could cope. This year, I think in large part because there is some kind of um, social consensus, that'd be overstating it, there is a general mood that people need to balance out those 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 risks. But uh, it'll be interesting to look back, and we do now have a Royal Commission that will look into the COVID response about whether or not the that day that we went too far, whether or not it would be smarter for us to have retained at least some of those requirements for particularly indoor, particularly closely gathered circumstances where we should be wearing masks. Tenth day, Saturday, October 8. Wayne Brown won by a landslide. He received over 144,000 votes, compared to his closest opponent, Efeso Collins, who sits at more than 89,000. Both myself and my rival Efeso, we love Auckland, but there are things that need fixing. That's the voice of Wayne Brown. You probably haven't heard an awful lot of it unless you're live streaming the council, Auckland council meetings, because he's not terribly keen on giving media interviews even now. He turned down even the ones the morning after, which must be the the, the, the softest interviews you'll ever get, the sort of congratulation entry interviews. So, you know, fair play. He just doesn't like talking to journalists, and who can really blame him for that? More broadly, those local elections, uh, I travelled around a bit, across the country to cover them for the spin-off and were the common threads well I think I think there were probably two that were borne out in the results Tori Fano won in Wellington uh, so you could say that's very different to Wayne Brown maybe what links it is that it was a repudiation of incumbency there were there were more incumbent more incumbents who who were either knocked out or stood down at this election than uh, for 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 many many elections, and three waters 
was definitely part of it. The There were some kind of notes of racism that I observed around the country, but in large part there was a resistance to the centralisation uh, that was involved, a resistance to the sense that control was being taken uh, from by the state from, from local communities. Uh, and I guess as much as anything, and Wayne Brown I think is the personification of this, a sense that people were just kind of a bit over the current state of things. The turnout was dismal, uh, as it had been in the election before and the one before that. Hopefully some things will be done to remedy that, even in a small direction, to pick it up in three years' time. In terms of the mood, I guess the question is how people return in 2023, after a bit of a break, whether people's moods are lifted or not. On which note, that brings us to <laughs> the 11th of the 10 days. Uh, as a result of inflation, the list has grown from 10 to 11. And day 11, the last one on this list, is very much about the mood, about the weather. And it is on Wednesday, November 23. Suck it in, New Zealand. There could be some collective belt tightening on the way following a supersize interest rate hike from the Reserve Bank and yet another gloomy economic forecast. The 75 basis point jump saw wholesale interest rates hit four and a quarter percent, the highest in more than a decade. And the forecast reads like an economic weather bomb. Persistent inflation hitting 7.5% just in time for Christmas. Recession clouds gather by mid next year as the tide of unemployment rises. Weather bomb, uh, that's Lisa Rowan on Checkpoint, and it really is a, a meteorological shower in recent times as a result of that Adrian Orr speech. The, he emerged from the last Monetary Policy Committee meeting of the year announcing a record 75 basis point increase in the cash rate. But it wasn't just that. That obviously has impact of its own in terms of the attempt to try and get inflation under control. But it, it very clearly sent a message, cool your jets was the message, but really painted a picture which should, uh, apart from anything else, disabuse any of the the suggestions that were going around, the insinuations that Adrian Orr was somehow in hock to Grant Robertson and the Labour government. Well, he served up a pretty tough gruel uh, on that day, on November 23, where he said that the year ahead is going to be pretty shit, really. He said that the belt tightening required in order to get inflation under control, would mean that we would go into recession. He was asked directly whether he, I think by Chloe Swarbrick the next day, whether he intended to engineer, to engineer a recession. He said, well, yes, yes, that's exactly what I said I'm going to do. That it wouldn't just be the recession, but a kind of stagflation mix too, because inflation would continue uh, to remain a problem. And also unemployment would return, unemployment which we haven't seen for so long, but uh, that's – and it's already happening. I mean, the most recent numbers on GDP suggest growth. But if you just – I mean, it's anecdata. I accept that. But you talk to people in a range of different areas who control budgets, whether they're big or small, and already the adjustments are being made to trim. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy then, that 
2023, the year 2023, is just going to be a pretty grim one in parts. Maybe maybe not as terrible as some have forecast, but it's it's going to be it's going to be tough, um, <laughs> which is not the brightest note to end this podcast in the gone by lunchtime. Uh, award-winning suite of podcasts, but but there it is. Um, that was a day, I think, that really set the scene for an election year, and it's going to be a fascinating one. We're looking forward to getting Annabelle and Ben back here, pulling the gaffer tape off their mouths and uh, talking politics through the year. We're going to have got a few kind of plans that we're boiling up. I think the first one back is likely to be on the 18th of January, Samuel. He's nodding. He's excited. I can tell. He's still he's still awake at the end of this um, debut monopod for me. Uh, thanks for your company, especially if you're a spin-off member. It's entirely because of member contributions that we can keep this podcast alive. Um, thanks again, Samuel. Thanks to Jane. Thanks to T.I. here. Thanks to our listeners. It's been a hell of a year uh, for many of us, but we've made it through. Haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.